This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. I'm Sam Adams, and this is Slate's Conspiracy Thrillers Movie Club. On this episode, we're talking about Get Out, Jordan Peele's socially conscious horror movie about a black man who goes to visit his white girlfriend's family and instantly starts getting vibes that there's something sinister going on just under the surface. The movie, which premiered as a midnight surprise at the Sundance Film Festival, went on to become an enormous sleeper hit, earning over $175 million in the U.S. alone and more than $250 million worldwide. It also established its writer-director, Jordan Peele, who had been best known as half of the comedy duo Key and Peele, as a formidable force behind the camera as well. Joining me to talk about Get Out is Kay Austin Collins. He's a staff writer at The Ringer, where he wrote an excellent piece on the film you should read if you haven't already. And he's also an accomplished crossword puzzle constructor whose puzzles have appeared in The New York Times and elsewhere. Cam, welcome to the club. Thanks. Great to be here. Were you at Sundance this year? I was at Sundance. I did not see this at Sundance. It was a very like badly kept secret. The TBA midnight movie on, I think, the Tuesday at the festival, right. Jordan Peele and his wife, Chelsea Peretti, kind of started to be spotted around the festival at, at some point. Right. And then I think they made it official like that afternoon, but it yeah. wasn't like officially part of the festival. It was my first Sundance, so I was not hip to keeping my ear on the ground. For this, like I heard about this as friends were going to it. Yeah. So, I mean, what what kind of sense did you get about like what was coming and what I mean, how did you react to the film when you finally saw it? Well, I should say that, you know, at Sundance, I was excited to hear that it was premiering there. I was aware of the last time a big black movie <laughs> premiered at Sundance. Birth of a Nation from last year? Yes. yes. Right. So, I, you know, as excited as I was, I do not want to give the sense that I was at all skeptical, but I was like, I, I don't want to immediately be all in on the black movie that Sundance is crazy about this year because, you know, you, you never know anymore. But when I finally saw it, Brownstone was really taken aback just talking about it as a movie, as a, as a debut. It's extremely impressive. And as a person who, speaking of myself, who is slow to horror movies because I'm a scaredy cat, I thought that this really is up to something. You know, like, I mean, I, I watched it again more recently and I my feelings have shifted a little bit and I'm like a little less crazy about it actually than I was the first time. But the first time, to be honest, I was really just like, wow, this is A, like everyone else, I've never seen a movie like this. B, I can't believe that someone made this movie (laughs) and now like in retrospect i'm like i can't believe this many people have seen this movie about this thing i'm impressed and pleased frankly yeah i mean it was pretty incredible i mean there is a sort of periodic thing every few months where some movie with a cast that's largely people of color is a surprise box office hit and right Every time people are like, maybe stop being surprised. Right. Um, right. Right. There's clearly an audience out there that isn't otherwise being served and like wants to see these movies. But I think th- the budget for this thing was something like six million dollars right. or something like that. So, I mean, it's just flat numbers, like, you know, one of the better box office performers of the year. And percentage wise, nothing's close. Nothing is close. Yeah. Nothing's going to come close. It's not surprising if you know Keen Peel at all. All of the people from the show, Peel and Keegan-Michael Key and their director, Peter Atencio, they have a really kind of well-developed sense right. of genre and visual style that's really you know unusual for a sketch comedy show. Right. So it didn't exactly come out of the blue, but just how assured a debut this was and how conscious Jordan Peele was, not just of the you know metaphorical underpinnings of his story, but clearly when he was making the film and more so when he was talking about it and, and promoting it, he really is 
deliberately putting it in this lineage of what he uh, took to calling social thrillers. And he programmed a series of movies along those lines at the Brooklyn Academy of Music that included movies like Night of the Living Dead. That was kind of seen as just a junky, you know, horror movie when it came out. But people have, you know, seen all sorts of social significance and, and right. subtext about the racial unrest of the 1960s and in retrospect. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, to your point about, which is a good thing to remember that like Key and Peele is already very good with genre. I think the thing that I, as a movie person, am always sort of trying to keep an eye on, but wary of is just like, you know, any director who makes a movie is going to talk about their influences and any director who kind of wants to give their movie a chance in a broader context is going to do things like what Peel has done and, and put it in the context of other movies like it and think about the, in this case, it's like Stepford Wives and Night of Living Dead, as you pointed out, They're just like give us other touchstones. This is like a common thing, particularly for dude first time directors. Yeah. So, you know, even with all that in the pot, you just don't know if it's going to be good. And I think just like the basic fact that this was, an exciting movie to watch was really great for me because as you point out, even though we shouldn't be surprised when black movies do well, the fact of the matter is that in the horror context, like we didn't really know. (laughs) Right. It's one thing if we're talking about like girls trip, which is just a sort of like, it shouldn't have been surprising to anyone that girls trip was a successful show. But with get out, I really did not know. I, you know, knowing the premise and then seeing the movie, understanding when I saw the movie that people seemed to be really into it and with all the buzz still, I was like, I really wonder if people are going to flock to this movie Because I don't know, because it's a movie about race where white liberals are so clearly the enemy. And even though I know that a lot of people of color certainly feel that way. And I dwelling on this because I I just it's so exciting. I just cannot have predicted that this would be like the international success that it is. That's the other thing. Like there's something about this movie that's really resonating far beyond the bounds of American conceptions of race. One of the other kind of saws in the business is that basically black actors can't open a movie overseas. Right, absolutely. And so not only is this like, you know, a movie that doesn't have name brand actors, it's also just a a movie that you just don't know how the racial politics of something are going to translate because racial politics are so different everywhere. You just you just don't know like how Chinese audiences versus American audiences versus like a German audience or whatever is going to respond to something like this. The fact that this has taken off so, so internationally, I think, you know, is indicative of something that maybe we're all relating to that we broadly should be discussing, frankly. I mean, the movie gets pretty grotesque and over the top in its third sure. act. And I'll mention here, as I do in all the other episodes, that this is not a spoiler-free zone. And we're going to talk about the whole movie, including the ending, because it's so interesting and was not really talked about when the film initially came out. Right. You know, it gets to a very almost cartoonish place at the end, but it gets you into that very subtly. And there's these little layers of needles, like when Bradley Whitford's character first meets Chris Stanel Kalulu's character and his white daughter is introducing, this is my boyfriend. He says, well, you know, how long has this been going on, this thing? Um, And I'm like, how do you- Catherine Keener's face. Yeah, and I'm like, how do you translate that that into Mandarin? You know? Yeah, right. Right. Like cultural codes like that. It's like, you know, like one of the ongoing jokes of this movie, and I think a reason in particular that like- you know, black people love it and in many ways find it hilarious has just been like the things that he's dealing with are just understandings that black people often have about white people. So like we do often expect like if you're going to like a, a white family's house and there is some story involving race and that family, they're going to tell you like like if there is an uncle or a grandfather who was ceremoniously beaten by Jesse Owens at the Olympics, they're going to like humble themselves to you in that way or say things like, isn't it fun to experience someone else's culture? I know what you're thinking. What? Come on, I get it. White family, 
black servants? It's a total cliche. I wasn't going to take you there. Well, you didn't have to, believe me. <laughs> no, uh, we hired Georgina and Walter to help care for my parents. When they died, I just, I, I, I couldn't bear to let them go. I mean, boy, I hate the way it looks. Yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, by the way, I I would have voted for Obama for a third term if I could. Best president in my lifetime, hands down. I agree. Yeah. You know, even just the way that there's this discussion after first meeting the parents, there's this discussion where she's just unloading that she just didn't realize that her parents were that way, and he's just going, uh huh. Uh huh. Right. There's just a thing that's already understood about all of this that is what makes it funny, but it's also just like it seems I don't want to say just American particular, but that's the kind of thing that I do wonder if that's going to translate like what that means elsewhere. Does everyone know that black Americans feel a particular way about well-meaning white Americans? <laughs> right. Well, I mean, one of the things about the movie is that it plays extraordinarily differently the second time you watch it. Yeah. Because particularly Alison Williams character you know, you have a completely different understanding of yeah. everything she does. And that's built into the movie. There, there are certain scenes that maybe the second time through, you're like, well, you know, I'm not quite sure. Like that made a lot of sense on the first time through. And I'm not sure it makes quite as much sense mm. the, the second time through. But that scene you're describing, it's almost like this realization she's having that like casual racism exists that right. and, and that her parents are capable of it. You know, right. I can't believe the way they're acting around you. I've never seen them like this. And as you said, Chris is like, yeah. Yeah, I've, right. I've seen this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, watching it again last night, one moment that really stood out to me that I actually think actually might be my favorite thing in the movie. It's such a small thing. It's after they have an interaction with the cop, they like hit a deer. A cop rolls up. He asks for Danny Kalua's ID, um, even though he wasn't driving. And there's like a conversation where she signals that, you know, this is clearly not OK. You're only asking because he's black, even though I, I remembered it differently. I thought that she more explicitly said that. But there's really like an exchange of gazes where the cop right. just eventually sort of backs off. But right after that, they have a moment in the car and they look at each other and he's like, that was hot. <laughs> I don't know why that. I, mean, I do know why that stands out to me. There's something like about the erotic dimension of the racial interactions here that I think I certainly haven't talked to other people enough about, but like that kind of detail, the sort of it's hot that you stood up for me in that way, or like that she knows how to perform such that she can reel him in a little bit by a little bit right. by doing things like this. But there's also just a real thing that's drawing upon when it's like, yeah, like I personally have dated a white guy and more than one white guy. And there was a moment with one in particular where uh, I didn't have to stand up for myself in a racial way because something was going on and he did it for me. And yeah, knowing that like that has a certain kind of appeal, the movie seems to understand things like that. And that's important to the way the movie plays out, right? Because it's important that he's in her snare. Right. So how good she is at doing things like this, it's really remarkable. I almost wish there were another movie now, though, that took the same kinds of tropes, not for a horror reason, but to really now explore... Like, why is it hot that this white person <laughs> that right. you're dating stood up for you in that moment? Right? Like, even as I immediately recognize that feeling, I also am like, okay, why is that hot? I know why it's hot, but why is that hot? It's, it's good enough for this movie that she understands that it is and that she does it. 
But now I'm like, all right, I need another movie that's going to like deal with it, frankly. Yeah, they have that brief interaction about like how, I don't even remember who says it first, but it's kind of about like they're feeling the racial flow right. between them. And it's kind of, it's not entirely cool, like what that's supposed to mean. No, it, it's, them, it's maybe something like that. But it's also just sort of like, that's the moment where Allison Williams is inseparable from girls for yeah. me. So I'm just sort of like, this is Marnie talking about racial flow. She doesn't know what she's talking about yeah. with racial flow, you know? Even that, even my discomfort actually during that, because I'm, First of all, I just think it's like a twerp phrase. It's just sort of like such a goober phrase, <laughs> racial flow. I just think yeah. that that's like the least cool word for whatever there is that they're talking about. But also just that they have this sort of language for talking about all the potential racial mishaps. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know that there's already a phrase that they have between each other for that, I think is really interesting. Yeah, I mean, it is very good on a level apart from genre to a certain extent. Like, I think Peel is just very good at getting that early couple interaction between yeah. them where they've got like a certain amount of shorthand or like code with each other but it's not all there yet like they yeah. can still have yeah. misunderstandings. Absolutely. And I think something else that Peel and his team really did well is like Frankly, and I say this with complete respect because I think Alison Williams is like great in Girls and I think she's great in this. I also think because of Girls in particular, when she was cast in this and when I saw that she played the girlfriend, I immediately knew something was up. <laughs> you know, yeah. like even like Catherine Keener, it's just like, you know, you chose like in Catherine Keener's case, especially for me. But when I think of like white liberal Hollywood indie actors, like she it's like her and like Jennifer Ely, like this category of, of actresses who just would be perfect for playing the secretly evil mom because on screen they are these sort of pinnacles of polite, well-intentioned liberalism. You that, think about her and like, please give or something. Right, like yeah. right, precisely. And it's like Alison Williams, I think about Marnie. So I'm just like, well, gosh, like Marnie dating a black dude. Yeah, they would use a phrase like racial flow, first of all. She would come up with that phrase. Yeah. Marnie would come up with the phrase. That would be like the name of a Marnie and Desi song. It would, abso- yeah. it would absolutely be the <laughs> <laughs> like a country rap, frankly. Oh, um, <laughs> but it's like the way that the personas of these people are integrated into this, like that it's not just about these characters. There's also like a sly nod to the actors playing them and the kinds of roles that they play that I think just like, again, I, I see that Marnie is the girlfriend and I'm like, man, clearly something is going on here, right? Because... I'm just suspicious automatically. And I mean, you have like Josh Lyman right. from the West Wing, totally. this, like this sort of master text of like 21st century white liberalism. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And so that's, of course, so when he says like this thing, you're like, oh man, Bradley Whitford's going to go in. He's going to do that thing, you know? He's going to be that guy. He's going to be that guy perfectly. And he has that line when he's showing him like his, you know, collection of African masks or whatever. This was just got to be like another huge alarm bell going off in Chris's Absol- mind. Absolutely. And he says the thing about what a privilege it is to experience in their person's culture which then has you know a lot of resonance yeah i love that moment i've experienced that moment i have to say one person in the cast i had to look up his name just because i want to make sure i talk about this guy caleb landry jones as (laughs) the brother can i just say i'm having a moment with him right now because of twin peaks because the Safdie Brothers movie Good Time just came out and so I watched heaven knows what where he plays kind of like a heroin addicted abusive boyfriend I have to say, this guy's good. Yeah. <laughs> I think Get Out's the first time that I really noticed him. And as soon as I saw him, I got flashbacks to every drunken white bro who's ever made me feel unsafe just by being in the same space with me. Yeah. Not because of anything that they said or even did, just because I was like, this could be racially volatile for no reason. Right. Like, this guy could just... 
he's drunk. He's got, you know, boat shoes on. <laughs> not to, not to like generalize to every like white guy who wears slacks and boat shoes and like has their shirt hanging out of their pants. But if you're drunk on the street at night, like in college, for example, yeah. I would see this kind of person and like the way that other people, when a black guy is walking down the street, cross the street, this is the kind of guy who makes me cross the street. And he is perfect at this and again like when you make him the brother i know something's up right so i can't predict what it's going to be but immediately when he's you know when he starts talking about black body type and athleticism it's like you know even if this doesn't go in a horror movie direction i'm sitting there for the first time watching it knowing it's going to go somewhere weird and he has that line about like you could really be a beast you ever get in a string fight as a kid i did judo after school first grade oh you should have seen me judo Because with your frame and your genetic makeup, if you really pushed your body, and I mean really trained, you know, no pussyfooting around, you'd be a fucking beast. You could just keep a horror movie about conversations like that. You don't even need to get into, like, hypnotism or whatever. You could, I mean, I'm glad that the movie kind of goes in the weird places that it does, but that in itself, like, I think that something that Jordan Peele really smartly does is he manages to find so many horrific quotidian details of just interacting with, particularly as, a like, an educated black person interacting with, you know, well-meaning, educated, liberal, white people. All the things that sort of happen that we don't really talk about. There's something really great about the way that that can play to an audience that has experienced that, where it's sort of like, this is like nothing, but on the other hand, there's a lot of this going on, and it's weird. For me, I mean, I feel like, in a way, the most nightmarish scene in the movie is there's kind of an extended garden party where, after having met her parents, Chris then goes out to meet all their friends. Right. And some of them are, I mean, we later learn that they're all part of this weird, you know, secret society, and they're effectively there to bid on Chris's body. But all he knows is that there are these kind of rich white people who are live in their long stream of black limousines, and some right. of them are not as good at keeping up a front as Allison Williams' family is. Yeah, totally. And and this gets back to the point you were making before about watching it for the second time and thinking about her in particular. I think it's a really sly performance yeah. because she's so good at... And I've seen the movie two and a half times now, and her performance satisfies me in multiple levels each time. She is sort of this bridge between the people who just sort of letting it all hang out still. Like, they're this part of the secret society. They're not revealing that part, but they are revealing that they're a little, quote unquote, problematic. Right. (laughs) And she's good at being the, you know, the good white girlfriend who is aware of that. She's like, oh my God, you guys. You know, yeah, like, right. Yeah. Like she's she's good at being like, man, don't say that thing. Or like, yeah. you know, don't you know, she's disturbingly good at that. I think the the, the most horrific part of the movie for me is definitely like her eating cereal. It's worth it. Which is well, which is an incredible thing. Which and, is a perfect image, yeah. frankly. That sums her up, I think, quite nicely. Yeah. I mean, the the line that really stuck out to me rewatching that garden party sequence is there's a pre-credit scene at the beginning. Where like Keith Stanfield is, you know, walking down the street in this white suburban neighborhood and he's lost and he gets clobbered by who we eventually find out later is Caleb Landry Jones and and taken away. And we into it later on has basically had his brain scooped out and a whitened person's brain put inside it. Right. And then Daniel Kalu recognizes him at the party where, you know, was just the only other black person there. So he goes up to talk to him and he says, well, you know, these people were just asking me about the African-American experience. What do you think about that? Right. And Lakeith Stanfield says, well, for me, the African-American experience has been very good. Yo, my man. 
They were asking me about the African-American experience. Maybe you could take this one. Oh. Well, well, I find that the African-American experience for me has been, for the most part, very good. Although, I find it difficult to go into detail as I haven't had much desire to leave the house in a while. <laughs> <laughs> We've become such homebodies. Yes, yes, yes. But even when you go into the city, I've just had no interest. It's this, you know, wonderfully strange line. Right. But then we also later realize that he's speaking as a white person who has only quite recently been implanted into this black body. And it's like, well, the first two weeks have been great. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Living in a nice neighborhood, wearing good clothes, having a good time. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot about, because when you first told me about this, my immediate thought was, oh, interesting to think about this in terms of conspiracies. Right. You kind of detailed this to me, and I think it's really helpful. Thinking just about what the main character or a character understands to be the way the world is working and nobody else believes them or nobody else is in on it or whatever. I think it's really interesting to think about how even this premise of, you know, black bodies being bought and sold and taken and the historical resonance there. It's just interesting to see how that interacts with such a contemporary kind of plot. Um, mm-hmm. It's interesting to see even though slavery was kind of, quote unquote, like a 19th century problem, I think watching this movie as a black audience, it's sort of like the immediacy with which I started to think about slavery when we get to that garden party, like the immediacy with which these things already seem to have pretty clear analogs. It really took me aback, and it still takes me aback about this movie, that I think it's one of the smarter things about it. It's like the trope, the believability of like a white person wanting to buy a black body to be more athletic. It's such a, like a common joke, at least in my family, we always used to joke about, and like my mom in particular would always talk about, you know, like the girls I went to high school with going to get tans all the time because they wanted to be black. Right. You know, just like, this is a thing that like, I'm not the only black kid who grew up hearing this from yeah. his parents all the time. And it's just like, to make a movie about precisely that kind of expectation, this is like, the white person who wants to be black in some way, but doesn't necessarily want the burden of blackness, like wants to live in a nice neighborhood, wants to do the Lakeith Stanfield thing, doesn't want to like be Lakeith Stanfield's body in like the projects. Right. Right. Doesn't want to be Lakeith Stanfield's body in like LA during the watch riots. You know, like it's like how the common black perceptions of white culture and what white culture demands of blackness got turned into the premise of this movie is really fascinating for me. Right. I mean, that's the thing that I've been wondering about as I've watched the movie again and thinking about it more. And, and you know, it's a metaphorical horror movie. So breaking it down to greater detail may not be that useful, but it did kind of make me wonder, like, how much of these white people kind of really thought this through? Because it's, yeah. it's like you're giving up a huge societal privilege. Right. Um, And maybe if they're all rich and they get to keep that, then maybe they get to be like, I'm not black, I'm OJ. Right, 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 right. You know, you want to check in with them, you know, like a few years later and be like, well, how do you like it now? If there's going to be a sequel, I would love to know what happens when like y'all move somewhere else. Right. <laughs> like, have to be, have to be black where you're not setting the tone when you're not in charge. I would wonder like how these people fare, to be quite honest with you. That's sort of what's interesting about this movie to me, like raising those questions of just thinking like, what are the conditions you'd have to make for yourself in order 
order to live in a black body, but like not have to deal with any of what that means beyond you wanted to be this photographer or you wanted to be more athletic or you wanted to look a particular way, which is the essence of the everything but the burden conversation is always just like, right. Yeah. You want darker skin, but if that were permanent and like the world started to see you as a darker skinned person, would you really want that? It's also really interesting how Stephen Root's character, who we eventually find out is kind of the one who wins the bidding war for right. Daniel Kaluuya's body. He's this blind art dealer who wanted to be a photographer, couldn't do it. And he says to Chris, he says, I want your eye. And, you know, that's kind of a metaphor, but it's also, you know, you get the sense that he thinks, well, if I physically possess his eyes, I'll be a good photographer. And she's right. like, well, what do you think? makes an artist like you think it's like just the body like it's just his eyes work differently like than yours because that's probably not it yeah and just like why this guy i don't know just you know sort of like not that i really need to like unpack the inner life of like this evil white character right but like i like i don't know that i'm that interested in his his like psychology but it's true like when you take that to its furthest end point it's just like it doesn't make sense it doesn't make sense that you would want to inhabit someone's body for this reason but the arbitrary Nature of the desire is, I think, essential to what's so weird and right about the premise. You know, yeah. like I had a moment where I was like, you know, this actually doesn't really make sense to me because why would they do that? Like, it doesn't make sense that white people would do this in this particular way. Right. But yeah. the more I think about it, it's just like, yeah, but they're not thinking this through in that way. Right. right? Like, yeah, could it just be them? Like, that's the nature of their like weird obsession that they say. Right. The kind of white person who thinks that. I- I, a black person, would want to hear that you would vote for Obama a third time is clearly not the kind of white person who's thinking about the implications of right, racial, yeah. you know, it's just sort of like, so that's sort of like off the table anyway. And they're like nincompoops. That's the end. Nincompoops with like a magical hypnotist power to do this awful thing. But still, essentially, they're dumb crooks. Right. I have to say, speaking of in terms of expectations, et cetera, I only yesterday saw the alternate ending. Yeah. Have you, you've seen it? Yeah, yeah. So in the alternate ending, I should say, the very end, there's the shootout. Everyone's dead except for Allison Williams and Danny Kluwa. And they're out on the street in the kind of long drive toward the estate. And rather than what happens in, in the movie that we all saw in the theaters, which is like the cops show up and it's not actually the cops. It's actually his best friend coming to save him. And, you know, hero saves the day, et cetera. He strangles her in the alternate version and actual cops show up and he gets arrested and there's a scene of him in jail. I mean, so I don't think it's a better ending, first of all. I think the ending that's tacked onto the original movie is better. But I've always wondered what it would have been like for real cops to show up and shoot him. Right. I just keep thinking. Which is kind of the ending of Night of the Living Dead. Which is the end of the Night of the Living Dead. And it's the thing that I expect to happen when I see the police lights. And I don't want that because I, you know, w- this is the first movie like this. So they like guy needs to live. He, he just yeah, he, he actually makes die. it all the way to the end credits rather he, than being yeah. like the fifth friend who dies. He, he's yeah. got to live. He yeah. just can't die. But I keep thinking about what the movie would have done to me had he died. Because for the entire runtime, this is a movie in which every sort of bad expectation that I, a black audience member, bring into the movie of the white liberal people, even not knowing that they're going to do this whole hypnotist scheme or whatever just knowing from the minute that bradley whitford's like this thing onward i just know to expect you know some mess and all those expectations get satisfied and the kind of cultural tropes of whites wanting to be black and all of that gets satisfied until the end when there's like this reversal and cathartically i get it i do wonder if the logical endpoint of this movie is for like the white 
people in the movie to always satisfy black people's worst expectations. In this case, that would be it not being the friend showing up, it being white cops, it even being the cop who stopped them earlier. Right. And shooting him. Again, I don't want that. Right. I, mean, I don't I, need that. I, I go back and forth. I mean, you know, the sort of the, the pessimistic ending and there's a small victory in the alternate ending where Chris is in jail and he says, well, you know, I stopped it. Yeah. Like he sacrificed himself, but at least like this yeah. weird conspiracy. Which thing is the is least over. exciting ending for me. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be honest. Either win or don't. Yeah. But yeah. But yeah. I think the way Peel does it is really smart. And yeah. Because he gives us, you know, as I mentioned, he's sitting there with Allison Williams gut shot, like bleeding out on the road. And then the, the police lights come up and he just stands up. And I think he even put like puts his hands up and he's facing the, the police car. And like, we all know how this is going to go now right, because we've right, seen right. it play out so many times in society. And I think that's enough. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's where I've landed, too, that like it's enough that you and the audience have the moment where you think, oh, clearly this is going to end in a particular way. Right. And no, I, I agree that that's where I've landed, too. And it's still, you know, pretty pessimistic with regard to sort of overall race relations. I mean, one of the sort of more interesting Subtextual things in the movie is that there are the two characters we later find out who we think are the kind of the gardener and the, the maid for the house that we later find out are inhabited by the the souls, I guess, or the brains of Bradley Whitford's parents. But there are these moments where the body's former inhabitants, you, there's a kind of a struggle going on and there's a biological explanation for that and that they explain that they have to keep the, the original person's like lower brain stem to take care of those functions. And they're still right. kind of rote conscious, but they're not like in control anymore. But, you know, there's a sense there that like the graft doesn't take. It's like actually these two things are kind of fundamentally incompatible on right. this like cerebral level. Like they just can't happen at the same time. And it is a movie – I wouldn't even say it ever bothered me, but I kind of thought about it and was like, huh. But like, there's no good white person in the movie. There's there's right. the cop who's talked out of taking his information, but, you know, nobody who's sympathetic. I think you're led to believe at some point that maybe Allison Williams' character has also been hypnotized and she's part of this thing unwillingly. And that turns out to be not the case. And then right. and they all suffer very gruesome, bloody deaths. And the movie, you know, doesn't apologize for that even in the slightest. It's very appropriate and almost kind of like exciting about it in a way that it sticks to its guns to that extent. Sure. In that respect, it's still a pretty bleak ending. It absolutely is. You know, to your point about thinking about whether Alison Williams's character is also kind of under control. I wondered about that, too. Watching again last night, there is a moment that I'd kind of forgotten about when Caleb Landry Jones is sort of acting up at dinner. Yeah. And Catherine Keener externally in her like hypno stern voice tells him like basically like sit the hell down but there's a moment of okay what kind of control does she have over the rest of her family not that i'm saying that i need the movie to kind of give me more backstory but it's, she's clearly the queen bee <laughs> yeah and they're the worker bees but i did i did kind of wonder about the variations among like the white people and their varied relationships to because right. there's only one hypnotist in the group. So what are the varieties of how they feel about like what complicity, they're doing? Complicity, yeah. Yeah, you yeah. know, like I, I've been curious about that as well. I keep wondering how we're going to feel about this movie in 10 years. I mean, as they said, I mean, Hollywood is very slow to, I don't think you can even say slow. I mean, it was very deliberately kind of averse to learning the, the lessons of a movie like this and its success. Yeah. But I mean, if there are any kinds of copycats and Peel is certainly, I think he's already got another movie in a TV series and um, whatever else in the works. But yeah. uh, how this will sort of play in, you know, be great if this were one of many vaguely similar 
movies, you know, 10 Absolutely. years from now or something. You know, what was funny about seeing this, because I, going into it, I was aware of, for example, his series at BAM, and I also just was aware of the premise. So I went and saw Guess Who's Coming to Dinner for the first time before I saw this for the first time. One thing that was really funny to me was that Get Out didn't make me more anxious than Guess Who's Coming to Dinner already. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, like, when you see it, it's so far preceded by all the conversations. Right. That people have already, all the jokes that have already been told and that already read, like Mark Harris's book about kind of that era of best picture winners and all these things. So I, I went into it not thinking I kind of knew what to expect, but I have to say what stands out to me and the reason I'm asking what are we going to think of Get Out in 10 years when we have another kind of Get Out or whatever. It's just that like as good as Get Out is unintentionally, I do think that guess who's coming to dinner or maybe not unintentionally the Sydney Poitier character really already put its finger on the weirdness of this situation for me. You know, like you needed get out to go in a really weird horror film place in order for it to be honest for me, like add something more to that because more of guests who's coming to dinner is spent with Sydney Poitier's anxiety than I expected. Right. Like more of it spent with like bullets coming down his face, you know, just like uh, bullets of sweat, just like his utter anxiety over both his parents and her parents and like, just like Catherine Hepburn's stern cheekbones and, you know, just like Get Out definitely amps it up. But what really impresses me about Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which is a movie that I, you know, overall don't know that I care for, is that like that part was already there. Right. So now I'm wondering, like, because Hollywood is slow to learn and Hollywood does repeat itself. I do wonder where we're going to go with this. Like what comes after Get Out? Like what directions are we going to be exploring? I'm not saying that in a, like a prescriptive way because I, I don't know what they're going to be. But, you know, Get Out is not as far a leap from Guess Who's Coming to Dinner as I expected it to be. So I'm curious to know what comes next. Like where are we going to go with this? The can of worms has been opened. I just want to know what more race and horror stuff is going to look like. And more other things combined with horror too. I think we could do more with gender and horror, even though gender has always been a part of horror. I think we could do more with that and other races as well. I think that white liberals will definitely be coming up again. <laughs> yeah. To be honest, I don't think that's been exhausted. Yeah, it's interesting. One of the things that's on the Blu-ray, in addition to the alternate ending, there's, as you would not be surprised, having seen the movie, a lot of Lil Rel Halley's uh, performance is improvised and oh, yeah. his like... The last line he has in the movie, you know, I'm, I'm T.S. motherfucking A, you know, we handle shit. <laughs> um, there were like probably 95 improvs there, but the, I think the, the Blu-ray has like six of them or something I like bet. that. And one of them is like him behind the wheel looking at Allison Williams bleeding in the driving going, you think she voted for Trump? <laughs> so I think we've got wow. more ahead of us. I'm glad you mentioned this because what I don't want to happen is for all the jokes and all the stuff to start going in that direction. Right. Like, I don't want the Allison Williams families to be off the hook now yeah. just because there's like the Trump families that people are going to make these movies. You know, like I don't want us to forget about this. Yeah. And that's why he, I mean, he said that was like kind of his second choice for that line, but that's exactly why he cut it. Yeah. Because he's yeah. like, yeah, I want this movie to be about white liberals, not about like white not liberals right like and, and you know just keep hashing out that conversation that we keep having about hillary clinton versus trump where it's just sort of like well you said it couldn't have been worse and it was worse and it's like you know yes but a lot of people have critiques of clinton and a lot of people have critiques of white liberals and not just like white trump voters and so it's good that we have this movie doing that and yeah. yes we can go back to our texas chainsaw 
white people, <laughs> you know, eventually. They'll always be there. They'll yeah. always be yeah. there. They'll always be there. But like, I'm glad that we have this one. Like, this is good. This is good. All right. Great. Thank you, Cam, for coming yeah, in. This, this is fun. This has been the Slate Conspiracy Thrillers Movie Club on Get Out. Read more about the movie and join our Facebook group to discuss the film at slate.com slash thrillers. This, sadly, is the last episode in the series, but you can listen to the seven previous ones there as well. The series has been produced by Chow Tu. Slate Plus's editorial director is Gabriel Roth, and I'm Sam Adams. Thank you. <laughs>